The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. While prostitution commonly holds the title as the world's oldest profession, war has a claim as perhaps the oldest literary subject. The ancient epics we have tend invariably toward heroes and their battlefield exploits. Tales of strength and courage, weakness and cowardice, wisdom and foolhardiness. While history tells us who won which battle and what the consequences were, giving us the where and when, literature supplies the how and the heart, the outward exertions and inner struggles of soldiers, the people they encounter, and all those they've left behind. In this episode, we revisit literature and war with three guests, a professor who teaches literature to students training to be military officers, a former soldier in Iraq who became an author, and the biographer of Kurt Vonnegut, whose experiences as a POW in Germany hardened his attitude toward war and shaped his classic novel, Slaughterhouse-Five. All that today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for joining me today. It's Memorial Day here in the States, which is one of those days that nations will have, kind of like military parades that might look different from the outside. For Americans, it's a day to remember those who sacrificed their lives, some of them in noble causes, to be sure, and some of them for more complicated reasons. War is awful. War is hell. War is a failure of humanity. All those statements are true. And yet, most people, most civilized people, have concluded that war is sometimes, unfortunately, necessary. War is sometimes just, depending on the cause. War has also been a testing ground, a place to demonstrate courage, a place to serve nobly to make one's fortune, a place of sacrifice, a site of developed friendships and brotherhood. The attitudes toward any particular war are rarely all one thing or another. The villains can sometimes be heroic, the heroes can sometimes be monstrous. There is mercy and there is murder. And there are writers. If there's ever been an endeavor that has needed writers more, writers who can see into human motivations and psychology, who can bring us the news of what things are like and what we've been told, and whether that's been deceitful, it comes in the theater of war. Is society deceived about war? And who deceives us and whom does that benefit? What is war really like? What really happened to those who were there? A lot of people turn away from these questions. A lot of soldiers struggle with them. The world is unfortunately not well equipped for deep and penetrating explorations. But literature is. And so are students of literature. That's the hope of Professor Elizabeth Samet, anyway. She is the author of a book called Soldier's Heart, which draws on her experiences teaching literature at West Point. She told us about teaching literature after 9-11, 
where the stakes were suddenly raised. It was a heightened atmosphere, as her students knew that they would likely be headed into combat. We asked her about her experiences in the classroom. Okay, so I have three questions to finish things up. Sure. My first one is, what have you learned about your students in the years that you've been teaching? Wow, that's a hard question. I think it changes all the time. Mm. I think maybe one of the things that I've learned is that in some ways they're not very different from their peers at other institutions. Mm-hmm. In that they're they when they start, they're 18, uh, they're immature in many ways, quite mature, more mature than I was at that age in other ways. Mm-hmm. They come to West Point for a variety of reasons, although I think they all share a fundamental desire to serve in some capacity. Mm-hmm. And they're, those who stay, I think, the reasons that they come to West Point are not necessarily the reasons they stay. Mm-hmm. So that they acquire a more sophisticated and a more complicated sense of purpose the longer they're there. And I think the most successful cadets and those who have the most fulfilling military careers, that sense of an evolving, maturing relationship to their profession has already begun while they're cadets. Hmm. Right. So that's that's one of the things that I've watched over the years. Yeah. Maybe the the other another thing that I've that I've noted increasingly, and I think this is not unique at all to the institution where I teach, is the ways in which technology has transformed the way people... I don't think it's transformed the way people can learn things, but it's it's transformed the way that... the assumptions that we make, that they make about the classroom, that I make about them. So sometimes I think that I'm sort of working against the grain sometimes, that they don't... I mean, people tell educators constantly that students learn a particular way and that technology has made them better at certain things. But I, I think that it, it's made all of us worse in certain respects. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that we should allow certain attributes to atrophy because I think we still need them. So I'm, I'm a constant, constantly focusing on deep attention and mm. patience. And those are really hard things. Right. And uh, then, so I, yeah. Oh, uh, I was just going to say, another change, which you, you've you been in a position to witness, I don't know how dramatic it's been, but it's kind of astonishing to me to think that we are now so far away from 9-11 that the students who are, who are coming in your classroom uh, would have no real memory of it. Whereas when you were first teaching, you, you were there when it happened, and then you saw students who would have been old enough to really register a before and after. Have you seen a difference as we've become kind of this nation where the the generation has grown up with a kind of focus on terrorism? Yes, I think for, so when I first got there, um, obviously it was before, before 9-11. And then those classes that were at West Point during that period and the ways in which they saw their lives change. They didn't quite know how they would change, but they knew that a that a major shift had occurred. And mm. then, of course, in a few years, it became 
quite obvious. And then yeah. there was a long period there where they had a very clear understanding of what their careers would look like. And for several years, they were exactly right. So that they would graduate from West Point, and within a year, they would be platoon leaders, and they would be fighting in Iraq or Afghanistan. Mm. And they they knew that as cadets. It drove how they thought of themselves and how they thought of their futures. And in the vast majority of cases, they were exactly right. And then that changed, but the thinking didn't change. So the assumption was, that's what I'm going to do. But then it wasn't always true. And so then part of my challenge became, how do you think about meaningful service if that's not your fate mm. in in a year? Because of course, armies derive, I mean, they, they train them, they train, they don't want war, but they train for war. And so it is this uh, overwhelming sense of responsibility and of urgency and absent that urgency, how do you create a life of meaningful service? Right. If you're not going to be a small unit leader in combat, what, what is it that you, that you do instead? And how can that still be vitally important? Right. And so that's been a change. And then my students, I would say, in the last few years are fond of calling themselves the post-9-11 post 9-11 generation or post 9-11 yeah. sensibility. And I'm not always sure what that means because I do think the event itself has receded in the memory. And I also think that all of the, the rhythms of life and these questions of security that you and I have had to get used to, they have grown up with. Right. And so they don't necessarily uh, see their world the same way we might. And some of the things that still we probably are uncomfortable with uh, the changes that we're uncomfortable with, they just have accepted as part of their lives. And so it's very interesting to be able to to talk to them about pre-9-11 history and what has changed and what hasn't and what their roles might be in the future. Boy, and those examples that you gave as you were kind of talking through the different waves of students and what they could expect and not expect really kind of emphasizes something you said at the very beginning, which was you have to you know, you're using literature to help them prepare for the unexpected. Um, right. You could imagine how difficult it would be for someone who's there and they think their career path is going to go one way and then to find out it's going to go a completely different way and it's all going to change dramatically and, and without any forewarning. Right. And and I've seen that crisis happen in much more mature officers. And mm. I don't want my students to have to face that for the first time. Uh, before they after they graduate, I want them to be able to do it at West Point, where they can talk about it and figure it out, and think about it and build up that um, determination and sense of adaptability, so that when that moment does happen, and it will happen, um, they're able to confront it and grapple with the, the particular challenges that they didn't anticipate. Right. Okay. Question number two: What have you learned about yourself as a teacher? That maybe is even harder than the first question. Uh, <laughs> I, I've learned that the same thing never works twice. Mm. That's something I oh. tell, talk talk <laughs> to our new faculty about sometimes. Yeah, that you devise this great plan and it works like a charm, and you think I will always do that and it will yep. always work and it's a winner. 
and yep. you try it again and it falls completely flat. And, and you so think, you oh, really... this is easy because I don't have to prep again because it all worked <laughs> out. And, and by the time I've done this three or four years, I'll be on autopilot and it doesn't work that way. <laughs> <laughs> right. So there's a, you always have to reinvent. And the other thing I think is that you, you have to navigate this line between education so so that for for my military colleagues they come from a training environment mm-hmm. and they need to figure and they're excellent trainers and then they need to f- figure out how to be educators and education doesn't always have a script in the same way that a training session mm, would and that's right. a really hard thing and so in talking about teaching there I've talked a lot about that and then reflected on my own practice within the classroom and you have to you have to sort of trust your students and yourself in the sense that you certainly have a plan, but you have to be willing to, to let it, to let things move in unexpected directions. And so I've, over the years, that's become, I've become more comfortable with that. And I, I know the things that I, I know the targets that I have to, to hit in class. I know the information I have to convey but it doesn't always, it's not always conveyed in the same order and it's not always conveyed at the same pace. And so mm-hmm. you really have to, to pay attention to that. And I've learned that the, I think the most important skill a teacher can have is to be a good listener. Mm. Yeah. And that's, that is really hard to do when you're in your head and you're thinking, okay, I have to do this and I have to do that. And what did that, what, you know, what do I do next? And I only have this much time left. You really just have to listen to whatever it is your students are are saying at the time, and that will actually guide all the rest of it. Right, because if your if your goal is not just, I mean, I've seen professors who have tried to, for whatever reason, they probably had this same kind of uh, frustration with the training versus education, or or they were frustrated by having to grade and and assign grades to something that can be kind of a creative endeavor. And so they've they turned their courses into small discrete tasks and and achievable goals. And you know, let's do a plot summaries for these five books, and then let's do character descriptions for these five books. And they sort of try to march students through, which which really doesn't work in college. I mean, that's it's really kind of defeats the purpose of what we're trying to mold college-age minds into being and becoming. I think it it's harder because you have to be on your toes the whole time. Mm-hmm. You have to be attuned at every minute to, to what's happening in the classroom rather than having your script. Yeah. And But it, I think it's the only way. And, you know, maybe it, it risks failure in some senses. In some hours, you don't get done what you think you ought to have done. But I think the payoff in those moments when it really works is absolutely worth it. And it gives, I think, students a sense of responsibility that they wouldn't otherwise have. Right. If they know that you're listening to what they say and that you'll remember it maybe from one class to the next and that it somehow shapes the direction of the course, <laughs> right. then I think they become more thoughtful about their contributions. Right. And I think they prepare with greater diligence. And again, you have to be willing, I think, in those cases. I, I, I talk about this when I, I have uh, colleagues sometimes at West Point and elsewhere who, who are big believers in reading quizzes and things like that. And I, and mm-hmm. I resist those, and I get the response, well, what about if the students don't read? And I say, well, if you create the kind of classroom where everyone wants to play 
and they know that to play, they have to be prepared, the vast majority will prepare. Because no one really wants to sit there for however long the class is and not be able to say anything. Right. No one really wants to be caught out in that way. Right. It's pretty boring if you don't know what everyone else is talking about. Right. And uh, and you can't participate. Uh, Okay, question number three. What have you learned about literature? What it can do, what it can't do, what it's good for, what it's not as good at? Well, for me, it's best at, and this will echo the, the themes we've been talking about throughout our conversation, best at imagining different situations, at plunging you into unfamiliar territory, into a landscape where sometimes the signposts and the evidence and the uh, clarity of things is not forthcoming, and you really have to work to understand. And I think that that's really the way life is. I think that's really the way when, if, if and when my students find themselves in difficult situations, those are the kinds of environments that they'll have to work with, where everything is not quite as it seems, mm-hmm. and where there are some things that are sometimes lost in translation, things that they have to do the work of interpretation to figure out. And I think that's the skill that literature provides. The question of empathy is an interesting one, because there are all sorts of studies that suggest that literature and the arts, although we like to think they increase empathy, might not. And so I'm less confident about that. Mm. But I do think it's useful in confronting people with difference and in confronting them with the reality that not everyone thinks the way they do. Not everyone has the same expectations that they do. Not everyone reads the world the same way they do. Mm -hmm. And I think an understanding of that is vital. Now, whether as a result of that you are awakened into a new sense of empathy and understanding, I think that depends and varies according to the reader. But I think at least understanding that those contrary views are out there and that you can't assume that people will interpret the world the way you do is a really essential skill. And I think that it is something that literature offers in a way that other disciplines might not. Some do, and it depends on the moment, but I think literature consistently offers us that. I think that's why the new buzzword among my students is this word relatable, Mm. which I can't stand. Um, (laughs) If literature's job is only to provide us with characters with whom we can relate, and I'm still not sure quite what that means, but then I think it's a miserable failure. Right. But if instead it give it confronts us with strangers in a strange land, then I think it's worthwhile. Mm, a beautiful answer. Mm, thank you, Professor Samet. Let's take a quick break and come back with a soldier who served in Iraq and found the author Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie to be essential to helping him understand his experience. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat 
has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. We are back. Matt Gallagher is next. Matt Gallagher is the author of the novels Empire City and Youngblood, a finalist for the Dayton Literary Peace Prize. His work has appeared in Esquire, ESPN, The New York Times, The Paris Review, and Wired, among other places. He's also the author of the Iraq War memoir Kaboom and co-editor of and contributor to the short fiction collection Fire and Forget, Short Stories from the Long War. In January 2017, Senator Elizabeth Warren read Matt's Boston Globe op-ed, Trump Rejects the Muslims Who Helped Us, on the U.S. Senate floor. In his work in March 2022, helping train a civilian defense force in leave Ukraine, was featured on CNN's Anderson Cooper 360. We spoke to Matt in 2020 about his experiences and how literature played a role in his life as a soldier. We begin where I asked him about what duty he had when he was stationed in Iraq. I was a scout platoon leader uh, uh-huh. in charge of uh, uh, 30 soldiers, and uh, we were sent um, over there in, in 2007 as part of the counterinsurgency, the surge, part of the shift to counterinsurgency. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, a lot of, uh, a, a lot less force on force type of stuff and a lot more kind of, uh, interacting with the locals, uh, trying to build up, trying to establish something like a, like an economy, um, waiting to get shot at by the insurgents and and then responding accordingly. Uh, but it was a, it was a lot more human interactions, uh, with the, with the local Iraqis than I probably would have anticipated a a couple years before. Yeah. That's such a, uh, I mean, we all lived through that from here where we were reading about this and it always seemed like such a you know such a hybrid of tasks that you were asked to do on the one hand be prepared to to do all the things that soldiers do in war and and risk your own life and kill and be killed and on the other hand at the same time trying to win the hearts and minds of the civilians and and do some some rebuilding and some some generating of trust and those kinds of things. It seems like it must have been a a very what's the right word sort of intellectually challenging and and maybe maybe it it pushed people to the breaking point to try to to try to handle both of those things and to fit them both into one mind and in the same day. Very much. Uh, it was it was an education, a, a stark one. You know, I think it was hardest on some of my soldiers who had deployed before, uh, either to Iraq earlier in the war or maybe to Afghanistan, uh, and had you know had some nasty experiences, and then to come back over and to pretend that you know they hadn't lost uh, some of their colleagues and and um, yeah. to uh, you know try you know because at that point 
winning the war the way Rumsfeld had foreseen was not happening. We were we were literally just trying to keep a civil uh, civil war from uh, breaking out. It was it was challenging for us all, and and uh, you know fifteen you know something that I think that was helpful for me at the time uh, was you know fifteen months was a really long time. Uh, there's no doubt about it, but looking around and interacting with those local Iraqis, whether they were the, uh, the powerful sheiks we were, we were negotiating contracts with, whether they were the, the Iraqi policemen or soldiers we were, we were going on raids with, or, you know, even just the local barber or the, you know, the, the, the local kids who sold us energy drinks, really kind of realizing this was, this was everything. This was all they'd known for, for years, uh, mm-hmm. all they would know for, for many more years to come, unfortunately. Uh, so, you know, I, I tried to, keep that in mind to, to keep some perspective, uh, on, on everything that, uh, uh, you know, 15 months was a long time, but really for, uh, we, we hadn't, we had an end date to, to this experience. Uh, the people we were, we were living amongst, uh, and interacting with, uh, uh, did not have that luxury. Right. And were you, uh, was literature a part of your life? Did you, were you, did you have access to books? Did you take books with you and, and were you able to read? Yeah, uh, took some books there. Uh, I read uh, Lawrence of Arabia over there. Uh, oh, some, right. Some of it was similar to our experiences. Uh, some yeah. of it was not. Uh, but uh, you know, when he when 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 he's on, he he's he's fantastic. Yeah. Kind of a classic. Uh, go uh, write write big and go for it and, and, and see what lands. You know, uh, so, some of it was a bit grandiose, but that uh, t- to my eyes, but that's okay. Uh, I remember reading uh, uh, Dispatches uh, by Michael Hare over there, um, mm. and uh, that was that was that was good too. Uh, in terms of as nasty as Iraq could be, some days we didn't have to deal with tigers uh, in the jungle, so that was uh, uh, helped put things in perspective. Uh, but I also just remember reading some stuff that uh, uh, friends or family sent me that had nothing to do with with war or, mm. or combat. My mom sent me. I re- first read Rebecca West, The Return of the Soldier, over over there, and and I think my mom was. Not so subtly trying to make a point that uh, there would be life uh, after after yeah. Iraq. Uh, some uh, one of my college friends that I you know have had some good times with grew up in the same main, hometown in Maine as Richard Russo, so he sent me some books. Uh, he sent me Straight Man and Empire Falls by Richard Russo, and uh-huh. so bizarrely I associate Richard Russo with Iraq of all places because that was the, the that was the first place I read him. Yeah. So uh yeah, you know, it, you have, you know, I think it's any war story, story about combat will, will tell you there is a lot of t- free time to kill. The the waiting around sometimes is the worst part. So, uh, I read a ton over there. Frankly, I uh looking back on it, I wish I could, you know, we didn't have t- too much access to the internet. So, uh Mm. I, I wish I, I wish I could had that kind of force non digital t- uh, that, that force non digital time upon me again. That, that wouldn't be a bad thing for my pro- productivity. Yeah, and I I was trying to th- imagine what you might have turned to literature for, and I think I I wrote a list of uh, possibilities down. It sounds like it was a mix of of a bunch of things, inspiration and and a bit of escapism, and there must have been times when you were glad to. Uh, to not have to think too much, and times when you were looking for uh, writers who had gone down similar paths or thought similar things to what you were experiencing. I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, much like any anybody who, who walks into a bookstore and 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 wants to pick up a book, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you're just looking to connect with with another with another human being or or a story and immerse yourself in it. And there's a multitude of reasons why you why you may be compelled to do that at the time. And, uh, uh, yeah, uh, I think I had to ship home a, a whole foot locker by the end of it. Uh, 
of, of, of books um, to, to get them all home. Uh, luckily, I mean, it's, it's crazy, but I, I guess it's a testament to uh, the American war machine. I mean, this was over a decade ago now, but you ordered something from Amazon, it would get there in seven to 10 days. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> they, they deliver all over the world. Um, that, was, that was kind of bizarre, too, um, feeling at, at points, you know, incredibly disconnected from right. your own life and, 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 and the people you love. But also, uh, you know, being able to order something on Amazon or when you did have Internet access, um, uh, writing them on, 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 on writing on their Facebook wall, that kind of stuff. So that yeah. was uh, that was kind of a uh, halfway there, halfway not surreal experience, part of the part of the war experience in the 21st century. Right. So I I have not been a soldier, but I did some traveling in some remote locations uh, before the Internet. And one of the things I remember is how, you know, someone would be reading a book and then we would all trade books. You know, we were always worried we were going to run out of stuff to read. And so everybody, whatever you were reading, you might be on a, a bus trip that took three or four days and you'd read, you know, Crime and Punishment. And meanwhile, you'd have your eye on the book that your your friend was reading, which would, you know, be Kafka or something, take you in a different place. And, and then you could talk about the things you were reading because everyone sort of read the same stuff. And was that happening with you? Or were you sort of alone as the, the uh, solitary reader in your group? Uh, there were, there were a couple other guys, soldiers generally, in general, are, are not maybe the most uh, uh, literary crowd. But, uh, you know, that's not, uh, I was not by, by no means was I the only one. Yeah. Uh, but you know, we could, we get back from a long patrol, I'd say most of the guys, uh, you know, just wanted to call home. Uh, maybe hit the gym, play video games. That that was something I just never understood. Uh, why, why you uh, want to get back from long patrol and then go play Call of Duty or something? But uh, for some <laughs> for some guys, that that was their thing. But yeah, did, did, right. did I have did I have, did I have friends uh, at the outpost that that I'd swap some books with and recommend some stuff to? Absolutely. Yeah. Do you think it changed you as a reader in any way? Did your experience as a soldier did it make you? Uh, impatient with any authors or um, with any types of books, or or do you think it opened you up in a way, or how do you is is there a way you can identify any ways that you changed as a reader? Oh, that's a great question. I think, and I you know I I'd hope that I would have gotten gotten here eventually anyhow, but I think kind of being in that bizarre counterinsurgency environment where. You know, a lot of times, even the guy, the the insurgents we were going after, you know, very, very few of them were kind of, quote unquote, evil, right? A, mm -hmm. a lot of them were, you know, a lot of them were 18, 19 year old kids, no younger than some of my younger, uh, younger, younger soldiers who got paid, you know, a month's sal a month salary that they would have made farming to try to plant a bomb on, on the foreign occupiers. Mm. You know, and, and who in the formative years of, of their lives have, have brought a lot of ruin and destruction. Empathy has its limits. Yeah. Uh, they're still trying, they're still trying to kill me and my friends, but uh, I, I can understand that. That that uh, after after we capture you, I, I can see things from your per perspective and point of view. You know, when I, when we'd raid houses looking for some of these guys, and and they weren't there, but their their mothers or their, their older sisters were, and they're they're glaring at us. I can 100. percent They're giving the same look that 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 my mom or grandma would would give yeah. uh, if somebody busts down my door in the middle 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 of the night. Right. So you know how, how does that relate to to me as a reader and 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 hopefully me as a writer? I'm just trying, you know just trying to remember to to give all characters their dimension their full dimensionality their due. 
Mm. Even, though, even, even if they're just a minor character on the page, give them, give them as much space as, as you possibly can uh, without, you know, uh, in service to the story. You know, this is, not, this is nothing new. Dostoevsky famously would always give his villains uh, the best argument uh, in his books. Uh, for similar reasons, but yeah, you know, I, I think that is something that stayed with me. That that when I pick out as a reader, you know, kind of stock characters that are really just kind of there to serve, serve uh, an authorial point or serve uh, as an obvious trope, I tend to roll my eyes, and, and that's mm-hmm. that is that is probably something I, I directly encountered and and had to reckon reconcile uh, and reckon with uh, in Iraq. Right. It's interesting that that was your answer to the question of how did being a a soldier make you a a different reader? Because my guess is if most people had to guess how might literature make someone a better soldier, they would have talked about a very similar thing, that it would expand them and, and be able to see things from multiple points of view and to understand the people around them better. So do you think that was part of, would you attribute your your life and in literature as, as being something that uh, helped you as a soldier as well as the other way around. Sure. Yeah. There's yeah. A, now that, now that she's put it that way, there's, I think there's a chicken egg dynamic going on. Yeah. You know, certain, certain people I think just deal with the world this way. And, and they, you know, I think most readers and writers uh, tend, tend to be okay with this, this kind of uh, complexity and, and, and dealing with nuanced perspectives. But, you know, I, I think most of us have friends that, that uh, find that um, paralyzing. And, mm. and they find they find power and urgency, yeah, in kind of singular thinking, and you know some, sometimes that can be really frustrating to deal with uh, on an interpersonal level. But uh, you know sometimes, especially with soldiering, you need to be like that. It might help, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, so you know that that was something uh, as a soldier I really had to learn how to do to know when to kind of turn off my uh, my literary brain right. uh, and 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 just power through the mission. Okay, so you came back. Eventually, you went to Columbia and got an MFA. So I'm guessing that was after you came back. It is, yeah. So yeah. I, I got I got back in uh, early 2009. This this was that brief glimmer of time when the when the war seemed to, seemed to have been won, uh, or you know as close to as as won as as these type of um, these type of wars can be. Got out of the army shortly thereafter. I you know I, I met my my service commitment and, and, uh, wanted to, wanted to do other things with my life. And, uh, my then girlfriend and now wife was, was here in New York. So, uh, I thought, uh, what the hell, maybe I'll, maybe I'll try this writer thing after all. And, uh, it ended up moving here, moving to New York and, and then going on to Columbia for my MFA in 2011. Mm-hmm. And had you been writing even uh, in Iraq, were you, in addition to, you know, letters and, and Facebook posts and things like that, had you been trying to write fiction or trying to write essays or anything like that? Uh, not fiction uh, just yet. I, I'd, I'd been keeping a blog, uh, mm-hmm. mostly as a way to keep in touch with family and friends. Then it got shut down by my colonel right. for saying, saying some unflattering things about him, um, <laughs> which, you know, it's a good it's a good, uh, you know, he handled it poorly. But on the other hand, uh, let that be a lesson for any younger listeners. Uh, whatever institution you're a part of, you can't make fun of your boss on the <laughs> internet, particularly <laughs> if it's the army. So uh, that was a that was an education in and of itself for for a young young brash lieutenant. But uh, you know, I, I think that planted some seeds. I you know, my intent for that had always kind of been you know to keep in touch, but also maybe serve as a time capsule. Mm-hmm. But uh, because it got shut down, it, it, it caught some attention from 
from folks. Uh, uh, there was a Washington Post reporter that, that did a story on it. So uh, uh, that kind of ended up the, uh, in a very roundabout way, um, eventually becoming my first my first book, the memoir, Kaboom, mm. uh, embracing mm-hmm. the in a savage little war. Were there stories that you felt weren't being told? Oh gosh, uh, somewhat. You know, I, I, it, it felt yeah. like there was a lot of like, you know, the war was so political uh, and and ju- mm-hmm. justly so. Just you know, it's it's all wars wars are political and 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 and, and it should you know in a, in a engaged in a republic of engaged citizens uh people should engage on that in that way but you know i I did part of me uh particularly being there uh found it important to uh, kind of talk about the day-to-day courage i I saw from my soldiers Mm. you know not the medal of honor stuff though you know when we were under fire they performed very ably but even just kind of you know doing this day in and day out the grind uh the grind of it all um doing the system, what it, you know, how it wore, wore down, you know, these very tough physically, physically and emotionally men, uh, that, uh, I learned so much, uh, from and, and, and was inspired from daily, you know, I mean, there were days I, you know, I wasn't sure if I could pull up my 140 pounds of bones and, and do it again, but, uh, I did it, I did it cause they were right. And, and, uh, uh, you know, that's a old, old soldierly truth, but, uh, it was, very visceral and very powerful in the moment. Yeah. Uh, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to share that with, uh, with, uh, uh, with people, you know, whether they were the family members of, 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 of my soldiers or whether they were just complete strangers, um, maybe to learning to look, learn a little bit more about, about things, um, just kind of give it a human touch. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, bef- before the, the, the previous phases of the war, so to speak, uh, the Iraqis really didn't come through in much of the literature because people just kind of drove around and, and shot at each other. You know, the acts of everyday bravery I saw from the Iraqis in the village we were at amazed me and still amazes me. You know, for a lot of these folks, they, they could get reprimanded for being seen talking to an American soldier too long, mm. for, for selling us falafels, uh, for talking about new neighbors that had moved in, uh, came and went at odd hours in the night. But that happened daily because they want the same thing anybody does in this world or, or the vast, vast majority of people want from this world, a little bit of peace, a little bit of stability, a, a place to raise their kids. Uh, and you know, the war was taking all of that for some Iraqis that we interacted with. They thought the best way for, for that to end was, uh, was to work with us. And, uh, uh some of their neighbors arrived at, at a completely uh, opposite conclusion. I'm, I realize I'm kind of rambling a bit now, but, uh, it was all these years later, it's still, it's still so complex and murky, so this just maybe a way to remind some listeners of, of what it was like in the moment, mm. because it was it was it was all, all sorts of murky and confusing at the time. Yeah. And finally, today we talked to Tom Rostin, author of a biography of Kurt Vonnegut called The Writer's Crusade. Kurt Vonnegut and the Many Lives of Slaughterhouse-Five. Tom told us about how Vonnegut served as a kind of bridge from World War II to the Vietnam era. While World War II was widely viewed by Americans as the Good War, unlike the more contested view of Vietnam, Vonnegut had his own views on this. Tom Rostin explains what Vonnegut thought about war and how that made its way into his fiction. So I'm tempted to start with Vonnegut, but I think instead I want to start with war 
more generally and its portrayal in books and films and popular culture. And in particular, I'm interested in the way that American society has treated World War II and Vietnam, which I think will take us right into Vonnegut, who bridged the two. But just to stick with war for a moment, I think it's fair to say that the tendency in American culture was to view World War II as the good war, quote unquote, and Vietnam as a bad war or a problematic war. And we see in Steven Spielberg's making of the Nazis into sort of cartoon bad guys in Raiders of the Lost Ark, for example. Yeah. Where do you think this impulse to romanticize war comes from? Yeah, I mean, it's it's complicated, but war is an extreme state, right? War is as is terrible and extreme a thing that we can do when we kill each other. And for better or for worse, only certain people do that killing, the soldiers who are out there. And for the rest of us, I never uh, enlisted, I, I never was a soldier. For the rest of us who haven't ever deployed or been in the military, it's an abstract thing. And yeah, it's it's we have a culture that tries to translate the awfulness of war. And for a long time, it was bugles blaring hmm. and, you know, rah, rah, rah. And, you know, I think there you could say there's a rationale for it for certain wars. You know, I'm thinking specifically of World War Two, mm-hmm. but there's very little room for the truth about war, which is that it's awful. People die. And even for the people who, quote unquote, win, it's awful. Yeah. So we as people try to tell ourselves stories. We as a nation try to tell ourselves stories to move on. And I think that's that, that's kind of the abstract on why we have so many wars that skew the truth, because we, we, there's a sense that we have to move on. Yeah. So war might be necessary and society doesn't want to to recognize the truth of war or hear the the negative side of war if it's considered to be a, a war that does have a good ultimate purpose. Well, it's any I mean, it's really you, know, you think about anything, anything terrible in our in our existence, whether it's domestic abuse or, yeah. you know or toxic waste. Yeah, cancer. You, 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 can't, you can't end with a downer. You know, people aren't going to want to read that book or watch that movie because you know, not, I don't want to start on too much of a downer on this conversation, but, you know, life is hard. Yeah. And I think for, you, you look at all the most popular culture, books, movies, whatever it is, uh, it makes you feel good once you're walking out the door because otherwise people just would be miserable. Right. Okay, so let's move into Vonnegut. Who was he... When he went to war, he was basically still a teenager, right? Or almost. Yeah, he was 22 when he enlisted. He was a smart kid from Indianapolis. He had realized that he had a real gift for writing, Hmm. but he didn't do well uh, academically. So he didn't really wasn't doing great in his colleges. He was at Cornell. And then this war happened and, and he enlisted. And then tragically, his mother killed herself Mm. on Mother's Day, no less. And um, six months later, he was in Germany fighting in what was one of the greatest defeats for American military, the Battle of the Bulge, when the Nazis did this great, you know, awful uh, counteroffensive and killed and captured many Americans. And, And Vonnegut was one of those guys that was captured and he became a prisoner of war. Right. So before we get there... Just one quick question. Do we know if he was anti-war before he went? Has he talked about that or or had he right, been a right. pacifist or anything like that before he enlisted? Well, it's it's a good question to ask because I don't think he would have ever said even later in life he was anti-war. Mm-hmm. You know, even though mm-hmm. the book he wrote, you know, Slaughterhouse Five about World War Two is an anti-war book. It's too, you know, he, he's an art. He was an artist. 
He wouldn't yeah. go black and white on anything. It's too abstract. Right. And he was very proud of his service during World War II. So just to answer your question, though, no, he was not anti-war going into it. He wasn't, you know, chomping at the bit to kill those Nazis necessarily. But he was he was ready to fight. And he, he had a mission that he was set to do. Mm hmm. And then in addition to being a POW, he saw the bombing of Dresden. Yeah. So he's captured. He's brought to a labor camp that is, you know, for an artist such as he, a creative person, you know, he, he immediately saw the irony that he was being kept underneath a slaughterhouse, Slaughterhouse 5 in Dresden. So, you know, there are these dead carcasses of animals used to be up above him. And, and then now he's this, you know, half alive prisoner of war. And being in that slaughterhouse is what saved him and his fellow prisoners of war, the 150 of them, because uh, they were in this like, you know, cement bunker, basically. Mm. And while the rest of Dresden was getting bombed to bits and tens of thousands of Germans were dying, these Americans were saved. Mm. And he was horrified by what he saw. He was horrified. He doesn't often, he very rarely ever says that though. Mm. directly yeah again being being the wry ironic satirical artist that he was he very rarely would be open about that especially later in his life yeah but yes he, he, in, in fact right after world war ii and after he comes back to the united states and tries to write about it he did write god that was awful many times but he found saying just that it didn't translate well it was just mm. it just was too weepy and and you know it was too political and um, it took him a while to coming around to how to write about it the way he wanted to in a way that actually touched people. Right. So I've seen a theory that the way he dealt with war and Dresden in Slaughterhouse-Five was kind of an example of the way that someone with PTSD might deal with the memory or the atrocity. Is that your theory as well? Yes. And, and I'll... I'll one from Vonnegut say, you know, like, I don't want to say exactly that's what I say because yeah. you can't say the guy had PTSD because I'm not his therapist. And right. anyway, PTSD was a diagnosis that came out later. But I will talk about, in general, his generation. Heck yeah. This yeah. whole generation came back from war and they were like, OK, we're done. We're done yeah. with that. Let's get back. Right. To, let's give you this GI Bill. Great. Let's, you know, let's gung ho. We kick those Nazis asses and here, away we go. And then as we know, you know, it's a whole generation of buttoned up silent Americans, veterans who, um, you know, a lot of them became alcoholics. I've spoken to a lot of children of uh, World War II veterans, a lot of children who talked about their fathers who developed these like obsessive hobbies, like building stone walls in the backyard for every daylight hour because they couldn't deal with the trauma of what they had gone through. Yeah. And so you and I, you know, from, from this perspective could say that looks a lot like PTSD. Because if you look at the symptoms of PTSD and the way di the PTSD is diagnosed, you know, it's you look at denial. Mm. You know, you got that. You've got extreme uh, emotional outbursts. You've got that. You've got numbness, alcoholism. You know, th there are a lot of things that just they just correlate so seamlessly from how that generation dealt with their war to uh, what today is the diagnosis of PTSD. So, yeah. I mean, I think it's a fair thing to to think about and to discuss. I wouldn't. And I don't, in my book, say, yes, he had PTSD. Right. But the use of science fiction conceit or the space alien, you know, the interplanetary travel, it's viewed, I guess, as a retreat from reality that people say that would be, whether or not Vonnegut had PTSD, that would be relatable to people who have gone through something similar 
in their attempts to deal with something horrible that they've witnessed. Definitely. And and I just want to note, look what we've done. We've already slipped from talking about Vonnegut. We're talking about Billy Pilgrim now, right? Yeah. So right. the the line between author and character, we've got to be aware of that. And we've got to be aware that Vonnegut himself was the one who skewed that. You know, he he was the one who put himself in his book and wrote a whole story about a character, about something that he himself had gone through. So but just I just wanted to know, let's, you know, we're 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 doing it right now. Exactly. We're falling into that fictional realm when we're also talking about a nonfiction person, Vonnegut. But yeah, the alien travel, the jumping in time, jumping in time, that's exactly what a flashback is, right? That's like the most cliched thing that we know that is a symptom of PTSD or a characteristic of PTSD, which is, you know, the soldiers go back to that moment and they can't get out of it. You know, you're, they're walking down a street and suddenly they think they're in, you know, in a, mm. in a mud paddy, in a rice paddy in, in Vietnam. And as awful as that is to the person experiencing it, for Billy Pilgrim, the character, it's this weird, like almost trippy, goofy thing where he jumps in time, which is what makes, I think, the novel so genius because Vonnegut makes, this is, comes back to what we were talking about before, Vonnegut makes something awful not seem so awful and allows us to actually digest it. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to ask because it, maybe this is a distinction without a difference, but it it almost seems like from what you were saying earlier, he had come to believe that when he talked about things more directly, he wasn't getting at the truth in some sense or the reality of it, or he couldn't convey what he wanted to convey about the experience, that he needed to come at it through a kind of angle yeah. that helped him get his artistic point across. Exactly. And it's no different from what Picasso might do when he depicts war mm. with, you know, so he doesn't do a realistic painting, right? Right. To, to, to feel the the grimness and this, the absurdity of war, you can't just say war sucks and it's, it's absurd. You've got to create this imaginary uh, storyline or this image. And uh, yeah, Vonnegut did it in spades. So the book came out in 1969. How did he become a cultural figure to the Vietnam War movement? For lack of a better word, I think Vonnegut was lucky. Uh, mm. Even though it took him 20, you know, more than two decades to, to write this book about his war, World War II, it just so happened that he published it right in the middle of this other terrible war. And it allowed people to really see what he was talking about because they applied it to their war. They, they, the younger yeah. generation applied it to Vietnam and they didn't so much think of it in terms of World War II. They were out in the streets or, you know, in their home. People were appalled by this war that was happening in Vietnam. And then here was this novel that was also depicting how terrible war could be, but in this imaginary way. But the book actually came out in March of 1969 when there was another terrible offensive and, and a lot of Americans died. So it was, I think, the uh, juxtaposition of these two wars and yet sort of the parallelism of the two wars was was just all there. And so it just made people get his book. And that's why, yeah, they claimed him this uh, 44-year-old, frankly, not he, he was not a countercultural dude. You know, he was fairly Midwestern. Yeah. But and again, an artist, a, a writer. But uh, he, he grew his hair out you know, around that time. It, it wasn't as long and poofy as, you know, until after, you know, he started becoming claimed as this countercultural person. Yeah. So it does seem kind of fair to say that the young people at the time who were protesting the Vietnam War were also 
hearing from the John Waynes of the world or the generation that was loudly reliving World War II who were saying, you know, you kids are, you hippies have no idea of patriotism or sacrifice. You're a bunch of whiners and you didn't sign up to be heroes like my generation did and so on. And and the Vietnam generation saw in Vonnegut somebody who was saying, those are myths. War is horrible. It's not great. It's not, there's not a a good war or a bad war. There's war that is kind of the overwhelming fact. I think you're exactly right. I think the fact that he was closer to their parents' generation made it all the more exciting and special. Like, finally, an old dude is saying it like it is. And I think, uh, yeah, that's why he really pierced through the clutter. Yeah. There's also a, a thing, I don't know if you see this in Vonnegut as well, where we look at war or events like 9-11 where we think, oh, the the good thing about that was we were so unified as a society. Mm. You know, we had Rosie the Riveter and paper drives and rubber drives, or in 9-11, it was, you know, the Bush megaphone moment and the 90% approval rating, and it's too bad our society is so fractured these days that might never come back. And, and Vonnegut might look at that and say, well, what were we unified around? Anger or revenge or willingness to go kill or the eagerness we had to smash stuff to feel better about ourselves. And, you know, it, it led to torture and secret prisons and, and wars. I mean, it, it, the unity or the unifying effect of it isn't necessarily all uh, uh, an unmitigated positive. No, no, certainly not. And, and he, Vonnegut went against the grain as much as he could not just to do it, but just because that's the way he thought. Yeah, He saw things as they were, not because other people saw them in the other direction. And he, he was totally appalled by the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. He died in 2007, but he had a good, uh, you know, several years of being totally depressed about it. And I, I think some of his quotes about how he felt about those wars are just very sad. You know, he said mm. that, he said some, I'll paraphrase, he said, I thought this country was going to be better. I thought it was going to be great. I, that's why I went to war. That's why I wrote books to contribute to its literature. But now look at us. We're a mess. Mm. And I think that's just so tragic to, to think that this guy had given everything, including fighting for, you know, you're risking his life to, in fighting in a war, to dedicating his life to, to writing books, and then being just so you know, appalled by the wars in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And yeah, and sure enough, lo and behold, he was proven right that those were wars that really shouldn't have been fought, and certainly not in the way that they were. Okay, there we go. Three writers on war, three different angles. I'm sure you have your own angles as well. But if you're like me, literature is here to give us room to ask questions and find our own positions, sometimes because we agree Sometimes because we disagree. Sometimes because we don't know or suspect we're wrong. Sometimes because we believe we're right, but aren't sure why. Even the most strongly held positions will sometimes give way to the flash of insight, the well-turned phrase, or the surprising emotional response that we might read in pages. We laugh and we weep, and we go on as humans through war through love, through loss, through peace. I hope you have as much peace and love in your lives and as much literature as possible. Dear listeners, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.